Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. I preached Hebrews 5, 1 through 4 last week, and really Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 is one thought unit. Um, and so I want to read Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 as a unit, though we'll spend this Sunday and next Sunday completing these 10 verses, if everything goes really well next Sunday and this Sunday, we'll complete these 10 verses. So uh, let me read Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, your spirit would illumine our minds so that we would understand what it is that he is saying to the churches. We would understand what he's saying not only to the church in the first century, these Hebrew Christians who received this letter, but what he has superintended for your church in every age. That we would understand the priesthood given in the Old Covenant, that Aaronic priesthood in that Mosaic Covenant, the goodness and graciousness of that gift to your Old Testament church, and that we would understand as well how Jesus is a far better high priest. That we would look to him in faith, trust him, find joy in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, religion, as a term, just that idea, religion, has really gotten a bad rap lately. Apparently, in our culture now, religion is bad, And spirituality is good. Or, you'll hear the phrase, you don't need religion, you need a relationship. And and these sorts of mantras are repeated often and they become almost meaningless because we're not quite sure what they mean. They have almost as many meanings as they have speakers of them. 
I think it's important that we recognize that there is a good and biblical kind of religion. There's a good and biblical use of that word. For example, James speaks of true religion. Luke is at pains to show us how religious Jesus was. That's why you continue to hear, as was his custom, he was in the Sabbath. Every, I mean, he was in the synagogue every Sabbath. As was his custom, as was his custom, etc. According to the law, he was quite religious. See, if being religious means you're committed to gathering with God's people on the Lord's day, to participate with them in the ordinances Christ has given to his church, and to join with them in worship and encouragement every chance you get, then that is not in and of itself bad. In fact, that kind of activity is biblically commanded. If, religious, if being religious means you're an active member of a local church who submits to biblical leadership and discipline, then that is not in and of itself bad. In fact, it's also biblically commanded. If being religious means that you are daily reading your Bible, that you are praying, even even reading pre-written prayers, that you are learning the apostolic doctrine and confessions and catechisms, that you're giving regularly to your church, that you're praying at meals, that you're having family worship, then none of that is in in and of itself bad. It is arguably all biblically commanded. Here's what you must understand, though. While all that activity is good activity, none of that activity has any spiritual power in and of itself. Thus, if being religious means that you do all manner of religious activity with a hard heart, walking in unrepentant sin, and not looking to Christ in faith, then the Lord has no interest in your religion. In fact, it's abhorrent to him. Or if being religious means that you trust in external religious activity, and you trust in that to be your hope before the Lord, or your justification, or your sanctification, then the Lord finds your religion abhorrent. It's offensive. Religion that the Lord hates is religion that is either empty of trust in the Lord Jesus or that is external ritual as a means to make yourself right with God. And these two errors are always tied together. It is this kind of religion that the author of Hebrews wants the Hebrew Christians to avoid. He wants them to put their trust in Jesus. He wants them to listen to Christ. He wants them to look to Christ. He wants them to see the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, ceremonies, sacrifices, and offices, the prophet, priest, and king, as all pointing to Jesus, as types and shadows that are pointing to him and that are fulfilled by him. He wants the Hebrew Christians to avoid turning away from Christ and turning back to that stuff which in and of itself never had any spiritual power. Yes, the old covenant sacrifices and ceremonies and offices communicated 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to those Old Testament saints who believed. They did. Listen, we confess that in the Old Testament, the grace of Jesus Christ was communicated, now here's the language, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, those things in the Old Testament were never, they never had any spiritual power in and of themselves, but were only spiritually effective or powerful as folks looked through them to the promises of Jesus Christ. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, don't go back, Hebrew Christians, to the types and shadows. Look to Jesus. But we might ask, what's the appeal? What's the appeal of that? What's the appeal of the temple and the the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the prophets and the king and the nation and the ceremonies? What's the appeal of all that? Frankly, it doesn't sound all that appealing to me. But I want you to imagine Old Covenant life as a Jew. And I say this because, understand, the Old Covenant stretches into the first century. You're a nation, as a Jew, that is set apart by God. God has given you his anointed prophets, priests, and kings. He's given you his promises and his covenants. You have a glorious temple that was magnificent in size and grandeur and beauty. Your worship is multisensory. If you will, it's replete with sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch. It has it all. You have what seems to be something like an orchestra. Look at the instruments noted in the Psalms. Something like an orchestra to lead you in singing spirit-inspired songs from a book called the Psalms. You have the sacrifices of animals in which you see a visible picture of your sin being atoned for. You smell it. You even later burn those animals and taste it. For example, at the Passover. You have a liturgical calendar. What I mean by that is a liturgy is an order of worship. You have a calendar, liturgical calendar, that orders your worship throughout the year. It governs your years, your months, your weeks, And your days. And all of this you have had for some 1,500 years. Think about the traditions we have in America that form a lot of who, who, what we see as our identity. They've only been around, folks, for a couple hundred years. This has been around for 1,500 years. And now Jesus has come, and he's fulfilled it all, and you're told, now that's all fulfilled, it's abrogated, it's over, it's put to an end. No more temple, no more priesthood, no more prophets, no more national kings, no more liturgical calendar governing your worship, no more national church. Your national 
cultural and religious identity have all just come to an end in Christ. Now that Christ has come, you have this Bible that men preach from. You have baptism. You have the Lord's Supper. You have prayer. And you have a multinational community of pilgrims who have no real home here. And that's it. No more external beauty and glory, just ordinary stuff. So you're tempted to go back to that stuff that had more outward glory, that had a better external and, if you will, earthly anchor for your identity. As those living as persecuted exiles with a worship and faith that seems so ordinary, you can almost hear them singing, give me some of that old-time religion. And thus Hebrews is a book telling these Christians, don't go back, Jesus is better than all that. Better than all of it. Jesus is better than those old covenant high priests who were such a gracious gift of God to his people. And that's really what we're looking at in our section today. Jesus is better than the old covenant high priest. And we're looking at how he's better than the old covenant high priest. Now last week I said that there were certain characteristics, commitments, duties of an old covenant high priest. And I pointed to four characteristics, commitments, or duties of the old covenant high priest. I said this, the old covenant high priest needs to be human. He needs to be sympathetic or compassionate. He needs to be, and I, for lack of a better adjective, mediatorial. In other words, committed to mediating between man and God. And fourth, he needs to be humble. And what I mean by that humility is he's not seeking the glory of the office. He's being appointed to the glory of the office by God himself. Now this week, we want to begin to see how Jesus is even better. How is he better than that old covenant high priest? See, he not only meets the standard of the old covenant high priest, he is far better. He is infinitely better than they could ever be. So in our text this morning, Jesus is now contrasted with the old covenant high priest, which we read about in Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 4. He's being contrasted with that old covenant high priest, both in the manner in which he properly fits that office that you see in verses 1 through 4, and that, those qualifications and duties, and in the manner in which he is better than those old covenant high priests. He's better like an oak tree is better than the acorn from which it came. And as an important caveat, I, I do want to say that, that there are ways in which the fulfillment is not like the promise. When I say that he's better in the same way an acorn is better, I mean, that oak tree is better than the acorn, my point is, is that one is leading to the other. One is the undeveloped form leading to the other. They're naturally connected. He's better as the high priest than the old covenant high priest in that way. But I want to put some caveats in here. There are ways in which the fulfillment is not like the promise. Do you guys hear that? Ways in which the fulfillment is not like the promise. And here's what I mean by that. There are ways in which he is so much better that he does not exactly fit the promise as they might have expected. But even those distinctions are related to the promise. G.K. Beale gives this helpful illustration 
or analogy when he says something like this. Imagine you live just before the turn. You know, you're, you're someone who's living just before the turn of the 20th century and into the, early, and into the maybe mid part of the 20th century. And you're, as a young person, told by your dad, he promises you, one day, son, I'm going to buy you a horse and buggy. And you think, oh, I can't wait to have my own vehicle kind of gallop around town. <laughs> See what's happening, right? <laughs> okay, looking forward to my horse and buggy. And he makes you that promise. And then one day your dad brings home a new Ford car. Hot off the assembly line, right out of Detroit. Are you disappointed? Dad, you didn't keep your promise. You promised me a horse and buggy. What's this new car all about? That's what we mean when we say Jesus is better in a way that was unexpected. So much better. So let's take two of the standards from last week. Last week I gave you four. Let's take two of those standards and duties of the old covenant priest, high priest, and see how Jesus is infinitely better than them. Today we're going to consider two aspects from last week's discussion. So first, the first aspect we're going to discuss today is his humble appointment by God. That Jesus as high priest is humbly appointed by God. And second, we're going to discuss his true humanity. Remember, the old covenant high priest was to be humbly appointed by God, and the old covenant high priest was to be a human. And we're going to discuss how Jesus is those things in spades, right? Um, Next week, we'll look at the other two identities, if you will, his compassion and his mediation for us. So let's look at the first aspect of the old covenant high priest and how Jesus is better. The high priest must be humble. That's the first one. The high priest must be humble or humbly appointed by God. Look at Hebrews 5, 5. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, it's probably important that I point out that originally, verses 5 through 10 in the Greek text is all one sentence. All one sentence answering Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. I I wanted to take it all together, but it was just becoming too long, so I broke it up. You're welcome. So let's let's look at how it starts. So also, verse 5, so also. That's comparing you or bringing you right back, if you will, by comparison to verse 4. And no one in the old covenant high priesthood, no one takes that honor for himself, verse 4, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said. See, just as Aaron, the first old covenant high priest, was not self-exalting, not self-appointing, but was called by God, was appointed by God, So also Christ was not self-exalting, was not self-appointing. Like Aaron, he was called and appointed by God. Yet, Jesus was infinitely better in his calling as high priest in two ways. Two ways. First, his appointment is an infinitely greater humiliation. Did you hear that? His appointment as high priest is an infinitely greater humiliation. You might say, 
how is being appointed as a high priest in the old covenant a humiliation? It's, it's an honor, but it's also a humbling because you are a servant of the people of God. You inherited no land if you're a part of the Levitical priesthood. You had no territory. Your inheritance was God himself. You were humbled to be a servant. You were also honored to be a servant, but you were humbled to be a servant. And Jesus' appointment is an infinitely greater humiliation. He is the eternally begotten Son of God who was appointed as high priest, who was appointed by, his, by the Father. If you see there in verse 5, he was appointed, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today. That is in that eternal day. He, what he's speaking here of is he's referencing you back to Psalm 2-7 and talking about the eternal begottenness of the Son of God. He has always been begotten of the Father. The Father eternally begets a Son. The Son is eternally begotten. Now, there's too much there for me to get into. Maybe I should say it this way. There never was a time when the Father was not a Father. There never will be a time when the Father will not be a Father. There never was a time when the Son was not a Son. There never will be a time when the Son is not Son. I was once not a father. I was a man, but not a father. One day I became a father. I begat a son. I became a father. I begat a daughter. I became a father. There was never a time in which the father was not a father. He was always the father of his son, who was always the son. They're eternally three in one. But here's what I want to drive at. The father appointed, he's the one who said to the son, I'm appointing you. So who was appointed to this high priesthood? Jesus, the Son, who was he appointed by? The Father. He was appointed by the Father. And this was a humiliation for him in one sense. So look at Philippians chapter 2. Keep your hand here in Philippians, or excuse me, in Hebrews 5, and look briefly at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what it's going to say about Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. In other words, by very nature God. <clears throat> He's God. Did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a man. Taking on the nature of man. You hear what, by the way, we're called by nature? Servants. We're servants of God by nature. <clears throat> Taking the form of a man or a servant. The, the God of all things, the King of kings and Lord of lords, takes the form of a servant. The creator takes to himself the form of the creature. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the Son of God added humanity to himself to be the high priest. Now, that humanity and divinity, when they come together in what we um, historically call the hypostatic union where two hypostases or natures unite together in one person, when that union occurs between the Son of God 
and the man, Jesus, when that union occurs at the incarnation, there is no change between those two natures. The divine nature doesn't change the human nature. The human nature doesn't change the divine nature. And so then you have this kind of third sort of being, right, who's kind of human, kind of God. That's not what we're saying. We're saying the fully divine Son of God without without losing anything that has to do with his essential deity took humanity to himself without humanity losing anything that has to do with his essential humanity. He became truly God, truly man, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But this is, if you will, subtraction by addition. For the creator to unite himself to humanity is robing his eternal glory in frail humanity. This is humility. This is the son giving himself to be a servant. For Aaron, right, one created in the form of a servant to be called and appointed as a servant of God's people is a privilege and an honor. One which no man should take for himself but should humbly receive. For the son of God to be appointed as high priest is incomprehensible humility. When I say it's incomprehensible, I mean you can't wrap your mind around it. You just see it's true and you shut your mouth because you're done knowing what to say at that point. He's God. He's man. He's one person. Now what? I don't know. I just have to stop. But he's humble. I know that. He took the form of a servant. Incomprehensibly humble. The second way, Jesus was infinitely better. So he's better than the old covenant high priest in that he is far more humble in his appointment to high priest. But the second way Jesus was infinitely better in his calling as high priest is that his appointment is to an eternal priesthood. So his humility is far greater and so is his exaltation. So is exaltation as an eternal high priest. If you hear what comes right after the becoming obedient, humbling himself, becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. The next phrase is, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is ever, above every name. But look back at Hebrews 5. <clears throat> Hebrews 5. His appointment is to an eternal priesthood. And look at verse 6. Hebrews 5 and verse 6. As he says also in another place, this is Psalm 110 and verse 4, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And then look down at verse 10. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The taxis. You know where we get the word taxonomy? That's the order of the taxis from which he comes. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he's called by the Father in Psalm 110 verse 4 to be the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews 7 will um, deal in depth with what it means to be after the order of Melchizedek. So I'm not going to go into that much this morning. Because we have a whole chapter. You guys know how long that takes? You get plenty of information on that. But let me just hit on two main themes that are being pointed out here with regard to this. First, first main theme here is the Aaronic order of high priests is appointed by God as a temporary priesthood. See that? When Moses' covenant is set up, it is a temporary covenant. 
It's put in place, Paul says in Galatians 3, until the heir should come. In other words, the son comes. It's a temporary covenant. And it has a temporary priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is temporary. The Aaronic order, i.e. the high priests among the Levitical priests, is temporary until the Messianic priest king comes. The priest king who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And now he has come, and so that order has ended. The Mosaic covenant has come to an end. The order of Melchizedek is not part, though, of that temporary Aaronic order given in the Mosaic covenant that has come to an end. So what he's saying is Jesus is called and appointed by God to a wholly different order than what came from Moses. In fact, that's the second theme there. Jesus is called and appointed to be high priest forever, not for a temporary time, until something better comes, but forever. Not only was he appointed, but he was appointed eternally. Listen, Jesus does not die, and you'll say, but he died on the cross. Yes, but he was resurrected to everlasting life. So Jesus does not die, and thus Jesus does not cease fulfilling his priesthood. Like the old covenant priests, he is resurrected and thus serves as the high priest forever. Think of it. The Son of God. The Lord of glory. The King of kings. The one who is appointed heir of all things. Through whom also God created the world. The one who is himself the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, where he is ever our priest. Ever. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. Keep your hand there. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Verse 1, now the point is, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, listen, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent or tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed, let's talk about the old covenant high priest now, appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary For this priest also would have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, now talking about Jesus, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He's seeing a pattern of the heavenly temple on the mountain. Make everything in accordance with that. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. See, so Jesus' humble appointment to high priest is infinitely better than the old covenant high priest. Infinitely better. So he's better in his 
humble appointment. Now let's look at the second aspect. He's better in his humanity. The high priest must be truly human. We'll take on some of this as well next week, but look at verse look back to chapter 5 and verse 7. After just talking about this eternally begotten son who in if you will in eternity past is appointed as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, we then get this change Verse 7, in the days of his flesh. Notice that. There were days before that that were not the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now this text through verse 9, I decided to save for next week. I just want to focus in on this first part. Notice that language, in the days of of his flesh. You see, Jesus was the eternal Son of God who took a human nature to himself. He is the God man, truly God and truly man. Better than saying fully God and fully man, by the way, because I don't know what a partially God and partially man might look like. Truly God and truly man. A man must serve as the high priest. Do you hear that? A man must serve as the high priest in order to represent man before God. It was man, a man, the first Adam, who failed in his duties as priest in the garden. Say, Adam was a priest in the garden? Yes. He was a king, given dominion over all of God's creation as a vice regent, Genesis chapter 1. He is also a priest, given priestly duties, In Genesis chapter 2, remember the Lord put the man in the garden and he said to the man, what? He is to keep it, right? He is to serve in it. You are to work it and keep it. That word in the Hebrew, work it, is the same word as the Hebrew word for priestly service. And that word for keep it is the word from which we get guard it. Those two Hebrew words, keep and guard, only come together in the rest of the Torah, the first five books, to explain the duties of the priest. He's like a high priest who's to keep it, who's to work it, to serve in it. And instead of working, serving in the garden and guarding the garden, he allowed the serpent to slither in and deceive his wife. He, too, followed the deceptive words of the serpent rather than crushing the serpent's head under his feet, as he ought to have done. Thus, the second Adam will come and be a better high priest. He will be the faithful servant Adam was not. He will be the one who crushes the serpent's head under his feet. And so the eternal Son of God took on humanity to be this second Adam, this high priest, as the first Adam failed to represent us in righteousness before God, but rather plunged us into sin and death, so the second Adam faithfully represented us in righteousness before God and gave us justification and everlasting life. By the way, that's the whole of the Lord's Day topic tonight in our um, Sunday evening service. So you, you didn't, I didn't just steal the thunder for tonight. I just whetted the appetite, I hope. The eternally begotten Son of God humbled himself to be man and to serve as our representative. 
That is breathtakingly glorious. We ought to be in awe of this humbling to become man for us. But listen to what John Owen, a great Puritan thinker, pastor, writer, said of this. We are never nearer Christ. You want to know what it means to be near Christ? You ready? We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. And indeed, his love herein, that although he were a son, the eternal son of God, yet he would condescend under the condition before described for our deliverance and salvation. That's that which fills the souls of believers with admiration, not only in this world, but unto eternity. Look, that's what you're going to sing about unto eternity. Blessing and honor to the lamb who was slain. So the eternal Son of God was humbly appointed by the Father to be high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he took to himself true humanity to be our high priest and representative. In both of these ways, he is infinitely better than the old covenant high priest. Infinitely better. Now, with that being said, let me point out some implications for today. And these, these are going to come kind of quick, but there are just five ways I was thinking I'm sure you can think of more, but I was thinking of, five, of ways in which we tend to look away from Christ and bring something akin to types and shadows. To look away from Christ and to something sort of akin to types and shadows. So we're not Hebrew Christians right in the first century, struggling with the temptation to return to the old covenant temple and the Jewish kingdom the Levitical priest, uh, priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the liturgical calendar. We're not those people. That's not our temptation, is it? There isn't an attempt, a temple or any of that around for it anyway. We can see how first century Hebrew Christians would struggle with this, but we're not them. We're not them. So here's a question. What are some ways that we might look away from Christ and look to something akin to types and shadows. What are ways which we are tempted to turn to a bad form of religion rather than looking to Christ? See, their temptation to turn to a bad form of religion is to not see through the types and shadows to Christ and see the fulfillment and therefore leave them behind, but rather to look back to them as religious rites. But there's another way in which we can pursue a bad form of religion, turning to something to akin to types and shadows rather than to Christ. So what are the equivalents for us? I, I came up with five. I'm not saying this is comprehensive or exhaustive. Um, I, do think it, I, I do think I want to tell you right up front, just so you know, um, there's low-hanging fruit here, and then there's a little bit higher-hanging fruit. There are ones that you'll feel like, yeah, go get them, and then ones where you feel like, oh, don't get me, right? So I, I attempted to be an equal opportunity offender. Don't want to leave anybody out, right? So especially myself. Let, let me give you some that I see today. The first one is this, Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism. Rome is a kind of full-blown return to types and shadows. It is like Christianity without the book of Hebrews or the book of Galatians, for all that matters. Different issue in the book of Galatians, but, but also a problem there. 
How, how, why do I say that? Look, we can see this in their priesthood, complete with ornate festal robes. It's as if you don't have an eternally living priest to whom you can go to, so you need to go to some type or shadow at your local parish to confess your sins and get absolution. We see this in their liturgical calendar, which is central to their understanding of the Christian life. They have seasons for just about everything. We see this in the Mass, where they contend that Christ is being sacrificed again and again and again for you. We can see this, probably in my favorite part of Roman Catholicism, in their glorious art and architecture. The reliance upon that sort of external beauty. Don't, my, don't, don't get me wrong. I love to go see those cathedrals myself. But you can't rely on them. We can't think things are more spiritually powerful inside of them. The Christians didn't have less spiritual power in the catacombs in Rome than they did in the temple in Jerusalem. Nor is there less spiritual power for the Protestants who ran and fled in homes and farms and barns and everything else to worship, and they couldn't worship in the cathedrals in Europe. Now, that wasn't true of all of them, but some of them. Some of them were smart enough to take their cathedrals back. Anyway, so we see this in their making of the sacraments into things that work, um, and I'm going to say it Latin phrase, ex opere operato. What that means is they'll say that the sacraments... That roughly translates into, by the working, they work. What do I mean by that? Just by the doing of taking the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, just by the doing of pedo-baptism or adult baptism, just by the doing of the various sacraments, which, of which they have seven, just by the doing of those, you don't do all of them, by the way. Um, everybody doesn't do all of them, but there's seven for them. Just by the doing of them, they're spiritually powerful. The ritual itself has power apart from faith. You take the Lord's Supper, and it's powerful whether you believe or not. See, I get the historical and external appeal of Rome. I do. I understand why people might be attracted to all of that. I also appreciate that Rome continues to uphold biblical Trinitarianism and biblical Christology. Those are not unimportant matters. Please don't get me wrong. Those are deeply important, it sets them apart from cults in a significant and substantial way. But our friends in Rome need the reformation that Hebrews brings to religion. They need the reformation that Galatians brings to the understanding of grace and works. The second way that I think there's a tendency to turn toward type and shadow this one I much more, have much more trepidation about saying, but here you go, dispensationalism. If you don't know what that is, that is the most popular form of theology in America, so much so that it's called in other parts of the world the American theology. Though in fairness, it was imported by the British um, to us, and so we should blame them like everything else that we blame on them. But, um, but they, you don't find a whole lot of people holding dispensationalism in Great Britain any longer. Um, 
I debated whether to include this. It's a system of belief um, that breaks the Bible down a particular way. And I, I debated whether to include it as, as I have. I want you to please hear this. I have some godly and wise brothers and pastors from whom I've learned much who hold the dispensationalism. So I'm not disparaging their character nor their love for Christ or anything else. So please don't misunderstand me. However, I placed it here because dispensationalism explicitly teaches that there is a day coming, there is a rapture coming, and just after the rapture, there will be a rebuilding of the temple and a return to the sacrificial system in that temple, on the temple mount, in Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is bringing Moses back with him. In a way, Jesus has become in their system a servant of the Mosaic Covenant rather than the Mosaic Covenant being a servant pointing to the Son. Now, I don't think, please miss, don't misunderstand me, I don't think my good dispensational brothers I have would ever agree to what I'm saying as a necessary implication of their doctrine. They would deny it um, from, as, as long as the day is, right? They would deny that that's a necessary implication. I'm asserting that with regard to them. So there it is. Third, the, I'm going to come a little closer to home. The evangelical liturgical calendar has eclipsed the, eclipsed the Lord's Day for us. What do I mean by that? For many of us, Christmas, Easter, um, even some Protestants, now, um, Lent, and now, thanks to Hallmark, Mother's Day, have become like high holy days. Right? Not Father's Day so much because no dad really wants to go to church on the Lord's Day, it seems. They want to do something else, but moms always want to go. Sadly... Churches are packed out on Mother's Day, and on Father's Day, they take a big dip. What's that about? Right? Dads, keep that in mind. Here's the thing. None of these are high holy days. None of them. But we treat them like they are. Somehow they've, they've gained greater significance for us than any other Lord's Day. Listen, I love Christmas and Easter. I'm not disparaging those holidays. I can't wait for them to start. I mean, like, November 1st. Christmas music starts for me, and it doesn't stop until the first of the year, right? I love those times of year. However, I'm glad for those cultural holidays. However, they are no more powerful or spiritually important than any other Sunday. Jesus is risen. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Is our message every Lord's Day? Every Lord's Day. That is really the whole of the Christian message. He is crucified and risen for you. Go read the book of Acts. They're at pains to run around everywhere they go saying, he's risen, he's risen, he's risen. That's central to their preaching. That isn't a holiday they have once a year where they all get together and say, he's risen. They post on Facebook, he's risen indeed. You know, and all stuff. That's not what they're doing. That's the central message of the gospel. Okay, fourth. Uh, by the way, I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else. I just want to say this. These are where you're getting to me. Um, the second one, dispensationalism, I was once a problem for me. Fourth, religious observance for its own sake. Hear that? Religious observance for its own sake. All those things that are good but are not saving can be perverted. They're not in and of themselves powerful. Can be perverted. So you can make your tithes and offering, your church membership, your Sunday attendance, your small group participation your personal Bible studies, and your family worship into a kind of justifying set of behaviors where you lean on those as if they're your salvation and not Christ. 
Further, you can easily slip into the error of turning the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper into regenerating, and ju- in other words, giving you new life and justifying, declaring you righteous forgiveness and kinds of ordinances. As if my baptism, for example, saves me. We're going to have baptisms here. That's why there's a horse trough here, not just we like horse troughs. But we're going to have baptisms here. That, there's nothing magical in that water that saves anybody, gives them new life. Baptism is a sign of God's saving grace, being given to the person baptized. Listen, but hear what I said. It's a sign of God's saving grace being given to the person baptized, but baptism is not God's saving grace being given to the person being baptized. It's a sign of it. It isn't the thing itself. You can have the sign and not the thing itself, can't you? We know false professors get baptized. They have the sign of God's saving grace being given to them, but they don't have the thing itself. They don't have the grace of God in Christ. Fifth, and by the way, the fact that that's true is the entire Presbyterian view of baptism is staked on that. It's not just something that's incidental to a Baptist view. It's, it's the whole of their view. So fifth, seeking external glory and aesthetic beauty in worship and thus devaluing the preached word. Maybe this one hits all of us as much as number four. Seeking external glory and aesthetic beauty in worship and thus devaluing the preached word. We can begin to look for power in a set of evangelical rituals and relics and ceremonies and performances faster than you might imagine. We can begin to think that what people need is something akin to a concert. They need amazing music combined with great lighting and backdrops. They need sets. They need themes for their sermon series. It can't just be Hebrews, Galatians, Philippians. It has to have a theme, right? And a backdrop. And you got creative artistry departments and churches now. It's like we're returning to the medieval era. You know that happened. The Christian church slowly returned to that and went to that in the medieval era. And then you got medievalism. And then out of that, the Reformation came, and now it's like evangelicals are just running right back into it. You know, in the medieval period, they stopped having the congregation sing, and they got professional musicians. Does that sound familiar? Not one of these people's paid, by the way. Some of them aren't, even aren't that good. But the point is, <laughs> sorry, no offense to you. You're godly, humble people. We appreciate you very much. <laughs> but they're not paid. They're not paid. They're not here as professional musicians. But what happened in the medieval churches, you got professional musicians and you told the congregation, stop singing. Now, how we turn tell the congregation to stop singing in our day is we make it dark and we turn the volume up so loud that you don't even know the congregation's there. You just hear the band. People would really be moved into worship. And the worship would be really powerful if we just created the right mood aesthetically. Listen, if you want your moods to be manipulated, go to a secular concert. They're amazing at it. Their light shows and fog things, whatever they do there, and music is all better than anything we got going. See, what if we added some really powerful elements to really juice this thing? You know, maybe... Have some painting in the spirit during the music or the sermon. 
that they're painting, who knows what it is, you turn around, whoa, it's Jesus every time. Maybe we can get, you know, the room super dark and light all kinds of candles everywhere. Man, that feels kind of moody. And we can get Jordan to play his normal kind of emo music. And off we go. Right? I love Jordan, so please don't take it as an insult at all. That's their generation. I'm okay with it. The gloriously godly man whom I appreciate. But, but maybe we have some cross up here and we give you all papers to write your sins and you, we have you come up here and nail your sins to the cross. That'd be dramatic. Hammer going over the music. The first cross wasn't quite enough for me, so I got to look at this one now. Maybe we can have some small groups and one-on-one and life-on-life discipleship as a central focus of the church because that's where the real thing happens. See, or for the really serious folks who want real power, maybe we can all take a trip to Israel and rebaptize you all in the Jordan River. Because this water's kind of nasty, not that exciting. It's a horse trough, right? But that water, Jesus was baptized there. That's the real stuff right there. Real power. Look, folks, once you start doing that, if you're flying to Israel getting rebaptized in the Jordan River, then you might as well fly on over to Rome and walk up the steps and go visit the bones of dead saints while you're at it because you're just participating in the same kind of relic ritual. Got to stop criticizing Rome. We, our hearts go there quickly, don't they? Real fast. See, we can poke at Rome all we want, but we're guilty of all manner of the same kinds of behavior. We, by we, I mean me. Most of the stuff I mentioned, not the painting of the Spirit, but most of the stuff I did at one time in history, right? I'm just as guilty as anybody else. We tend to devalue the preached word and the sacraments. And in all this stuff, we replace listening to Jesus and looking to Jesus with types and shadows. Sovereign Grace, I encourage you to look to Jesus and listen to Jesus. He is the infinitely better high priest. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your son and what a good high priest he is, how he is better than any who came before. He is the one who has gone between us and you and reconciled us to you in himself in the giving of his own life for our sins. May we look to him and trust him and Never look to any of the good gifts you've given us as in and of themselves powerful, but look through them to your son, Jesus. And trust him and grow in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.